Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. A couple months ago, someone filled out the form to be a guest on the When Autumn Comes podcast. And the first thing I read was, I know you usually have mom guests, but if you're open to having a dad be on your show, dot, dot, dot. He also added that we have so much in common, that our stories are so parallel. And I was like, oh, this guy's just trying to, what is this guy trying to do? Get on this, this show. No, not really. I wasn't like that. I was super excited and I immediately went, to the Father's Day episode. Just like last year, we are bringing on a dad for Father's Day, y'all. This week, you're going to meet Daniel. You're going to hear about his family and his son, Lucas, and how they were affected by a rare disease. There are some interesting twists and turns in this story, like his rare disease is one of the few that actually has a cure. Like, how mind blowing is that? But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow the story. You have to listen. I also want to add how inspired I was by Daniel in general because he took the grief and the hardship and the scariness of this rare disease journey and he's doing good with it. He works for Global Genes, but he also is the founder of the Disorder Channel. So if you have a Fire Stick or Roku, get excited. There's a channel for us, y'all. A channel for us. Your little editor's note here, there was some technical difficulties apparently with my microphone. I hope that I can edit out the nonsense, but if not, I sincerely apologize. Sincerely, because no one really wants to listen to me ramble with a bad microphone. Okay, welcome Daniel. Happy Father's Day, Daniel. I know we're recording this a little bit early, but happy Father's Day. This is our When Autumn Comes Father's Day episode, and this is our second year of bringing a dad on for Father's Day. So welcome. And let me just say, as two moms sitting here, we appreciate, even though we ramble about our husbands on occasion on these episodes, we are very grateful for our partners and happy Father's Day. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for uh, making the exception and letting a dad into the mom's club. Oh, we actually love it. It's good for us. <laughs> it's good perspective, I think. It really is. And I'm excited to talk to you today because, you know, there's just so much that moms internalize. And here at When Autumn Comes, we talk a lot about our feelings. And it's just refreshing to pull feelings out of a dad. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your family and what makes you a rare disease parent. 
The simplest answer is our firstborn child, Lucas, had Menke syndrome. And like probably so many people that listen to your show and have this experience, it changes everything. You have to suddenly learn what this disease is and what it's going to mean. The prognosis isn't good. In our case, it's a prognosis of three to ten years. And um, some, you know, a, a child, Lucas, who's not going to walk or talk or be able to take food by mouth and despite all that you know he's a source of joy he's a great kid uh he lit up our lives and a big part of my story is um that information wasn't available that's not what you find out when you get your diagnosis you get the bad news and it seems like there couldn't possibly be any good news and it took a while but what i had to discover was you will still have a life with this child and a lot of it will be a good life and that's the reason I made my film, which is a documentary on Menke's syndrome called Menke's Disease, Finding Help and Hope, because I wanted to put that bad news in a context. Mm-hmm. So I can't change how bad the prognosis is and the likely outcomes, but I can give you context of other families that have lived this life and found some joy in it. And I think that is important. It's one of the reasons people like you and these podcasts tell these stories because Mm -hmm. without that context, it's just too bleak and isolating. Absolutely. And you're 100% correct. When they handed us the diagnosis, you know, in that dark, quiet conference room, they threw out the two to five year life expectancy. They probably won't walk, probably won't talk, won't eat by mouth. You like drop this on a bomb on a parent who in some cases 24 hours prior was thinking she was having a normal child normal life like everything just goes upside down and in that conversation no one not one person said you will love this child you will find joy you will find hope you will like she will may not be able to talk but she's going to be sassy as all get out like no one talks about that and you're right that's why we do this because we want people to find hope in the darkness of a diagnosis. I am already excited to talk to you because I appreciate my husband so much for his level-headedness. I know not all women are the same, but I know that emotions just come at me and they swirl and I can't compartmentalize them. And you have already like put it into little compartments of this is our reality. This is what we're given, but there will be joy. And it makes it so much clearer and manageable in little bits of where, like Susan said, I was flattened. I cried for four hours the entire car ride home after she said, just don't Google. And I was like, what the hell do you mean don't Google? What am I supposed to do with myself? So any parent that is listening right now, just you may not understand this, what he just said about you're given this diagnosis and prognosis and it's terrifying, but trust that what he is saying that there will be joy. It is 100% true and your life will you'll have this gaping hole of, you know, pain, but just beautiful joy that comes from it. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like we got there easily or quickly. It was years before we got past the just devastating pain of what we're up against here into places where we could think this is different, but not all different is going to be horrible. Right. I mean, it's a struggle, but it's not without joy. Sometimes we always say, what do we say, Susan? Together at the same time without blending the two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Together at the same time without blending the two is, is, that's how we are all surviving. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, tell us a little bit about him. Like, what did he love? Yeah, it's what you guys so- just missed is like his his face <laughs> just started like this Beaming. big glowing smile the second he like inhaled and this huge smile came over his face. So go ahead, tell us about him. Well, he's just the greatest. I mean, we, when he was born, probably like every parent, you know, you gush. And my wife and I said, how did we get so lucky to have the greatest boy ever? And we never stopped saying that, you know, despite the setbacks and the challenges, he was the greatest boy ever until we had another one. Then they were vying <laughs> for that job boys. together. Yeah, the two greatest <laughs> boys. Yeah. But yeah, he was verbally non-communicative. But boy, did he make up for that with his eyes and his smile. I mean, he had these crystal ice blue eyes and the smile. I'm so lucky that I can say he had a friend because you know how it goes with non-communicative kids and a special needs program. What is a friendship there? It's a little different. They're not coming over for play dates. They're not telling you what they like. Um, But he did have a friend and she said about him to anyone she met he has a smile this big and i'm gesturing really wide here but fill your whole face with a smile and she was right you know that's that was lucas so what did he like what he liked most was his people and his people would be us the immediate family plus our nurse we were lucky to have a home health care nurse almost 40 hours a week so she was a huge part of our life and he identified those people with the times they should be close to him. So for my wife and I, that would be like after 5 p.m. most days when we could spend more time with Lucas. If he could pull you in close, I mean, he wouldn't be doing the pulling, but if you came close, he lit up. He loved it. He, especially his little brother, that was just this crazy overload of joy. But then also he would be a little greedy about it. And if you started to leave the room, he'd grunt. He had happy noises and unhappy noises. And the grunt was, hey, you're supposed to be here with me now. Why are you leaving me? And there are also like little cues, like based on, I don't know, an internal clock or rhythms or whatever. But, you know, whether it was 530 every night, my wife might roll him from his position on the couch onto her lap and then snuggle him. And he'd come to expect that and he'd give her these sly little looks out of the corner of his eye like is it now is this when we're doing this and then if he had to wait too long then he'd you'd get the displeased noise like hey come on aren't we doing this so that was the biggest thing to him and it's weird for me to think about like people do make a wish right and we couldn't ask lucas what his wish was we didn't do one partly because what did he want? Did he want to, you know, hang out with Mickey Mouse? Probably not. I mean, he actually hated costume characters. Full body costumes would scare the life out of him. He, he and my son would be best friends. Like yeah. they, the ice blue eyes and all of the things you're saying, they would, they would have been besties. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, even the firemen that would come to school, if they had their helmets on and a mask, oh, no, forget it. There's something about, like, the uncanny valley, the not-quite-human look. He was well, also, and he likes people. He connects with people. So not yeah. seeing eyes and face. And, yeah, absolutely. Yep. yep. And then, to his discredit, he was actually a little prejudiced against people in wheelchairs. Not kids. Adults. <laughs> adults in wheelchairs just seemed wrong to him, and it freaked him out a little bit and he was a kid in a wheelchair you yeah. know but but i think for him his normal was kids can be in wheelchairs and adults should be capable or hmm. upright 
or something, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, that's that's some of the good and bad about Lucas. He's mostly, almost all good. That's amazing. We, we weren't going to talk about this, but I do want to say, since we talked about, you know, when, when you're handed that diagnosis or prognosis or when they told me Lorelai was going to be nonverbal, it terrified the crap out of me. Like, how do I talk to my, how do I communicate with my child? And, and I wanted to circle back to where you said, like, there were grunts. There were, you know, like with Lorelai, you knew, mmm, was a happy noise. And so, like, if there are families that are listening that are early in this journey, just because they're nonverbal does not mean they cannot communicate. That was something that I learned as I went because I, I was terrified. Like, I was a communications major in college. I know how to talk. How am I going to handle not being able to talk to my child and her not talking back? Diane's daughter is also nonverbal, and you have the same, like, you've told me Selah has very demanding Oh, she is. It's funny when you're like, he was, he was, he knew what he wanted when he wanted and drew you in with his eyes. I was going to interrupt you, and I didn't want to, um, to the families listening again. You hit the nail on the head. Like, we go through our life with our verbal children or just being verbal. And I think because we process so quickly and it's second nature and we talk, we don't pause. And when you sit and you stare at these kids and you have to zone in to them and like you said, look into their steel blue eyes or you know, in our case, just huge brown eyes, it is like this pause and the world is happening around you and you're like, I am seeing into your soul and we are communicating on a whole different level. You know, I find that Selah being nonverbal gets very, very, very challenging for me because I'm like, what do you want? I don't know what you want. At the same time, I feel so bad for you, but I'm so frustrated with you. And school this year, there was one person in an IEP that wrote, looking into her big, beautiful, brown, expressive eyes. And instantly I started crying. Like somebody sees my child the way that I see her and they can communicate with her the way I know she can communicate. It was the most calming and reassuring thing. And so if there are any teachers listening to that may not you know, know exactly how to connect with the parents or allow the parents to get a view of what they see. That was incredible for me to hear that somebody connected with my child on the same level I do, because it does take time. Absolutely. I think so much of the language around our situations, whether you say special needs child or disabled child or whatever, it's routinely framed in what's lacking, right? Lack the ability to speak, lack the ability to walk. But there are some, and you have to reframe and retrain yourself to be focused on them. There are some things that are better than or more than, Mm -hmm. like more able to connect to people's souls. Now, that may sound too... Uh, hey, I'm no. all here for the woo-woo. No, I get yeah. it. It's, yeah. it's 100% but, true. <laughs> yeah, if if you can light up a room without a word, you're a little bit more powerful than uh, me and Sue's that are communications majors that think we've got some skills in that art, you know. Yep. 100%, yeah. I agree. So let, let's dive into your son passed, but he passed outside of the predicted age range, correct? Yeah, he beat the odds. Mm-hmm. A little we were, bit. <laughs> we were, Lorelai was two to five. She passed at five and a half. So, you guys are heightening you know, the like, curve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, whatever we can do for, for science, right? <laughs> yeah. 
And, and that's also complicated, too. I mean, you've talked, and I appreciate you guys so much for how you've covered grief and, and redefining grief and how it starts a diagnosis, and there's different phases, and we could go on forever on just that. But seeing the short lifespan is a, is a tricky thing. Feeling Lucas beat the odds of living three to ten years and Anna's tenth birthday, you're like, okay, well, now it, what now? It's all bonus time. It's all borrowed time. It's even more close to the end now. And sure enough, around that time, we were told in a, you know, a, a actually urology visit, we're looking at months, not years. And you still think, even as realistic or as educated as you may have gotten yourself on this condition, I found myself going, oh, months, months is 11, 11 months, right? Well, no, it was, it was six months. That's what he meant. I mean, nobody knew, but right. in, in hindsight, it was six months. So after getting that months, not years kind of warning, that was December. And then a few months later, COVID happens and the world's in pandemic mode. And we're very reluctant to go to hospitals because mm-hmm. New York State, uh, where I live, upstate New York, but New York City at the time of May of 2020 was one of the epicenters, the most cases. And it's not hard to imagine what happens in New York City travels three hours north and happens here. So I don't like to second guess any of our care for Lucas, but I wonder if we were a little more reluctant to go to the hospital, if should we have gone earlier, you know? I don't think, you know, we still had the same timeline. So would it have bought us another month or something? Maybe, I don't know. But that certainly complicated, I mean, there's no good way you're gonna lose a child. No. But, you know, we did not want to lose a child when only one of us could visit in the hospital. Yeah. But, you know, I can complain about COVID and I can actually give COVID some credit because if you were told, and some of us are told, you're going to lose a loved one, what would you do differently? You'd spend more time with that loved one. And with no school because of COVID, we were all in the house together, spending more time together. So we got that little bit of a blessing that we didn't know was leading into the time we would lose him. Yep. My husband was able to stay home from work for a whole year, and it ended up being the whole last year of Lorelai's life. In some ways, obviously, none of us would hope for a global pandemic, but just like the diagnoses that we've all received, there is the good that can be found in it. Now, Lucas's life, though, timing was just a kicker the whole life though right can we talk about how he has one of the few rare diseases that had a treatment and is this a genetic disease yeah it's the atp 7a gene it can be a spontaneous or de novo which it was for lucas or it could be two-thirds of cases would be inherited from the mother uh it wouldn't be inherited from the father because um the males don't live to be reproductive age Wow, it's interesting. So the cruel timing, I mean, these are all cruel diseases, no point in comparing, but the particulars here are vicious because, as you said, most rare diseases don't have a treatment or a cure. Menke's disease actually does. It's only effective if given in the first 10 days of life. Oh. How would you know to do that? We weren't diagnosed till age one. But if there was a family history, you might. You might get the testing done in time, and you might start the treatment in time. But for us, 
what may have been unrelated probably was related. Lucas was born with a skull fracture, and therefore we were quickly moved from our small birthing hospital to the larger research hospital nearby where he could go to see neuro and everybody else. And so he's in the right place at the right time. We spent 10 days in the NICU. Neurology is looking at him. As good a situation as possible existed for somebody to say, oh, this is Menke's disease. But that's not going to happen because there's 7,000 rare diseases and most doctors don't know most of them. And the symptoms don't really present till four months. So the one symptom that does present Menke's is also called kinky hair syndrome. So he'll have, uh, as a hairdresser, you'll be interested, a twisted hair, pili torti, I think it's called, which is also brittle and it'll break off. So he would have a bald spot in the back wherever his head touched you know the bedding but other than that until four months and you see oh you're missing milestones and then actually at nine months in our case he regressed from the little bit of progress and milestones he had made so those were the big signals like we need to go look for a genetic diagnosis and again it's always terrible to say the word lucky in the rare disease space but Lucky for us, um, the local geneticist had seen Menke's cases before. So right away, instead of having a diagnostic odyssey of some people, it's years to get to your your diagnosis. We uh, started looking in September, and we had our answer in January. And a side note, I think you've talked a lot. A lot of moms have the issues of sleep, you know, problems with Mm -hmm. the kids with sleep. We had a brutal time with Lucas up until age nine months. And then we got hardcore and we did the cry it out thing, right? Like, we are just going to make this happen. Now, bear in mind, please forgive us, we didn't know he had a diagnosis. We didn't know that we thought he was a typical kid. And we let him cry it out at age nine months. And he broke his cycle of dependency on us that wasn't going to let him sleep in the night. And he started sleeping through the night. And thank God it was that timing because a few days later, we're told, you need to go seek a genetic diagnosis for your child. Well, then we would never have been as cruel as to try our sleep it out <laughs> yeah. ruthless methods, you know? So we got it in the timing just right for that. So, yeah. Can I ask you, just from a male perspective, did you carry any sort of resentment towards there was a freaking cure for my child and we did not get it? I mean, to whoever, to the world, to doctors, to nobody. I mean, like... How did to God? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of resentment. I think it'll sound weird. I took some comfort in the random genetics and the numbers. Right, Uh, this is tricky to say because anyone who is a carrier, they shouldn't have guilt, but they often do have guilt. Right, and that wasn't our case. My wife was not a carrier. This was a random genetic mutation, and I found that somewhat comfortable. Like This is like lightning striking. This happens to some people. We are some people. This happened to us. doesn't make it easier, but it sort of it makes sense because you know it doesn't have to make sense, right? And similarly, while I could be angry at doctors or hospitals or whoever else, knowing there's 7,000 rare diseases, would I know them all as a doctor? Would I be on the lookout for all of them? There's just no way. So yeah, I didn't want to be forgiving, but I could see the logic that would lead to being forgiving. Mm-hmm. And did it take you a long time? How did you process through that? I mean, because I know I've been very sad about our situation, 
now granted I haven't lost a child or I haven't been in the position of like, you've got to be kidding me. There's, there's a cure for this. Like my child could be here so that, I mean, I can't even speak to how you would feel, but, um, for some people that may feel stuck in just the grief or the, this isn't fair type of thing. Like, is there a way that you found to get yourself out of that? The, this isn't fair thing. It's real. It's a genuine feeling. People should feel it. But maybe when, when you're on your stronger days, remind yourself like what you say to little kids, like little kids say, this isn't fair. You're like, life isn't fair, mm-hmm. right? Well, it isn't. Mm-hmm. And, but the, this isn't fair kind of boils down to why me, right? Some other people don't have this. I have this. Why me? And again, it took a long time for me to get there. But the why me question can be flipped. Not just why is this happening to me? Why am I burdened or, or my child? But why is it me that's called upon to do something different than I thought I was going to have to do? Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more manageable, actionable, transformative. Sure enough, my career changed because of this. You know, not instantly, not on diagnosis day, but, you know, 11 years later, I work at Global Genes and Rare Disease. I never heard of rare disease before my son was born. So I love that. Not saying everyone has to make it their life's work and their mission, but the why me can lead you to places that are better than just anger and pity and. Uh, remorse. It can lead you to positive things. I love that. I love your perspective. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no. it, this perspective does not like all of us are here because we are advocating for our kids and bringing hope to other parents, but it does not happen overnight. Let me tell you. And I think in some, in some circumstances, maybe I could go as far as saying most, it's cyclical, right? Like you're going through different stages of grief or coming to terms with what you've been given and it can come and go totally in different stages. So just be gentle with yourself. I literally just Googled what are other words for pause? Because every week I say, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back. We need a timeout. So with that, here's a few. Or maybe I should use one. Today's, today's word is going to be, we're going to take a quick hiatus. Okay, you know the drill. It's still me. I just wanted to add a couple little things here that if you are new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are a podcast for mamas and dads and the people who love them that are facing life's unexpected journeys. You already know this because you already listened to the intro. What I'm here to tell you right now is that we have something called the When Autumn Comes Society. It is a Facebook group for all of you to get together and chat about all things life, podcast, Netflix, whatever, you, the disorder channel. Let's talk about that this week, Okay. Um, we'll, we'll have a homework assignment. So join us there. It's facebook.com slash when autumn comes society. Everybody's welcome. I hope you join us now back to the show. I should probably Google. What is another word for back? Let's return to the show. I guess we could pivot a little bit and pivot towards what you are doing with your way of taking on this for lack of a better word not burden, but you took on the challenge of, okay, this is how it's going to help me. I need to share this message. I need to talk to other families. I need to start a film festival. What pushed you to start all of this? What was your, other than your son, what was your motivation? 
Yeah, I think each step leads to the next. For me, in hindsight, it seems a very logical progression, but each one was like dipping your toe in the water and trying to figure out, is this right? And the first was writing a blog post. And just that might have just been me venting or ranting, or I need to talk to somebody, let me put it down on paper. But when you put it out there in the world, then you a little bit more figure out what it means to others. Mm -hmm. And maybe that helps you think through what it meant to you after all, right? Mm -hmm. So this, in my case, the first blog post I wrote, uh, something like how having a dying child changed all my expectations. People responded to it, which is great. You want feedback, you'd like positive feedback, but also I was hearing, I needed to hear this. I'm glad I'm not the only one. And then a light bulb goes off that, okay, this isn't just me ranting. This isn't me venting. It's useful to somebody. And, you know, I think it's Brene Brown says, your story of how you got through your struggle is going to be the next person's guidebook. And that's huge because too much of what we're dealing with here is not enough information, not enough allies, not enough people together in the fight with us. How are you going to find those people? People have to be open to share these stories, and that's how you find these people. And that's Bo Bigelow is my partner in the film festival and the Disorder Channel. He'll say that all the time, that you put this thing out there in the world like a beacon. And I actually prefer maybe like a magnet. And your story is your signal. And you're saying something like open for business or whatever. But this is how people are going to find you. And you'll be amazed at who finds you. Sometimes it's these great podcast hosts that become your friends. And sometimes it's the person that's like, I'm researching that gene. That's what happened to Bo Bigelow. I'm the guy researching the gene your daughter has. Let's work together. I I can't say enough for it. I mean, some people are not like that. They want to be personal. They want to be private. That's fine. But if you are comfortable with it, absolutely put yourself out there. The rewards that come back to you are so many. And so that first step Luckily, I got the feedback that was encouraging because I thought, if that's a good step, maybe I should make this film. With a lot of issues, you know, you look around the world, you're like, oh, there's global warming. Somebody should do something about that. But you can say the somebody is not me. The somebody is somebody else. But with a rare disease community of less than 100 people, what are the chances one of the other Menke's parents had filmmaking skills? I couldn't blow that one off. I couldn't say, somebody else has got this. I'll let them do it, right? So I can tend towards procrastination. Um, With this film, it was easy for me to get the other family's stories, and I found myself stuck. At first, I assumed the opposite. I thought, oh, my family, that's easy. They're available anytime. I can interview them anytime. It won't be hard. Well, it was hard emotionally, and I kept putting off our story. Finally, that feeling of, if I don't do it, nobody will, got me across the finish line. And getting the film out there in the world was great. You know, it helped create awareness for Menke's syndrome. But there's only so many places you can show it. You know, you do some film festivals, and then film festivals don't want you anymore because you're yesterday's news. And that's when I met Bo Bigelow at Global Genes in 2015, and he was thinking he would make a film about his daughter. And he had done the same route of writing some blog posts and wrote for The Mighty and uh, had a podcast. And I said, I want you to make that film on your daughter. I'm going to help you make that film. But when it's done, we need to talk about what are the good places to show these films. And they don't exist. Mm -hmm. So if they don't exist, should we create it? And so a little while later, I got back in touch with Bo and said, 
we need to create that thing. And I think what the thing is, is a film festival that takes sort of the best of a general interest film festival, which anybody could go to at a low cost, and the best of a medical conference, which can be expensive and not so easy to go to, but has the dedicated audience that we need, right? The researchers, the, the drug companies, the clinicians. Smash those things together. Let's get an event where we don't just curate the films about rare disease, we curate the audience so that it, we're not just preaching to the patients and the caregivers who already have a lot of this message in their lives. Mm-hmm. We're getting it to the researchers or the people that might make a drug. Or, And sure enough, if you've talked to people that work in rare disease research, a lot of them get a little bit lost in the lab. Like, I've never met a patient. I've been working on this disease for 10 years. I've never met a patient with it. We're not exactly solving that piece of it, but we're showing the story on film, and they go, thank you, this is why we do what we do. This is the reason I'm in this career. And they may have lost track of that, or they just appreciate the reminder of that. Yeah. That's so cool. We ended up doing a lunch and learn, meet and greet, with the team that's studying FBXL4 Mito. We sat down with the team, and they were like, we forget that there's humans on the other side of this. So to be able to see the videos and see the footage, and I sent them pictures of my kids to put up in the lab. It's just such a creative way that you went about this to show the world and show the, re- like, it wasn't just for the families. It wasn't just to get your story out. There was a bigger, bigger reason. Yeah. When we started, we were a little afraid there weren't enough rare disease films you know we knew about five people that had them like okay we'll get our five friends and we'll show those films but then we opened the floodgates and they came in Mm -hmm. and they still keep coming it's amazing and similarly with podcasts you know when 2015 when i was first paying attention to the rare disease space i knew one of the reasons bo was exceptional is i knew of three rare disease podcasts total in the world and now our website we have a list of 45 Mm -hmm. and it's probably not complete but there's a lot. A medical mom podcast pop up all the time. And I personally, I reach out to as many of them as I can. And I'm like, we need to unite our forces so that we can come together. And like, if I can be on your show and you can be on, the more people we can help, the more people that can hear our message, like that's my goal. And we specifically hear, my goal is to love on moms and dads and the people who love them. But I am very passionate about holding their hands as they go through this. I think together, all of us bring so much, I've said it three times now, but so much light to this darkness. And I feel like you and I are going to become best friends. Sorry. Absolutely. So as we record this, we're, we're not far off from Mother's Day. And Mother's Day was hard. Now, this is the second Mother's Day without Lucas. Um, last year's Mother's Day maybe wasn't hard. And I I guess that's one of the points I want to make here is that the grief waves, they get triggered, but you don't know what's going to trigger them. And the thing you think might do it might not do it. So my wife actually had, I think she would agree, had a very pleasant Mother's Day up until a point. And we had, the point was, there'll be any number of things that might come up and she'll say, I'm worried about ABC. And I usually have the role of saying, oh no, ABC is nothing to worry about. Right. Or we've got it, you know, and it's it's not the problem you think it is. And and that's hopefully often reassuring. Can I pause and ask you a question from a male perspective? Yep. When you say that, 
do you say it in like a, I have to say this for my wife so she feels better? Or do you genuinely, are you like, it's not that big of a deal or it it won't happen? Do you do it from like a protective standpoint or a logical? Flip a coin on a given okay. day. It's some of the time it's, it's just a knee jerk reaction. Like she needs to be reassured. I'm going to reassure her. And other times it's like, no, it's, it's really not as big a problem. We can, we can manage it. Yeah. So the issue that came up that way at the end of mother's day was when Lucas died, we COVID times, we didn't choose to have a funeral or a ceremony and gather people. Instead, we planted three trees in the backyard and his ashes are nourishing those trees. And they struggled a little bit, but did well in their first year, the trees. This year, it's now middle of May, and they have yet to bloom. And she's worried about that. And I would typically say, nothing to worry about. They're going to be fine. But I said, yeah, I'm worried about it too. And then we both went into a tailspin. And it was totally loaded with how much symbolism do these trees have? Is this his memorial? Is his memorial failing? And then she took it a next step, which I hadn't even thought it through. She's like, me checking those trees is like when I used to check his urine levels. All the preventative care you'd have to do to hope and struggle and fight against the odds that something might die, I'm now doing for these stupid trees. And it was really loaded. It was really heavy. It was triggering. And I know logically we both do that the tree doesn't have to be the symbol of Lucas. If we lose the trees, it doesn't really change anything. You know, we could we could talk ourselves out of it, I suppose, but it was rough and nasty. And I guess what I want people to know, though, is that that's one of the ways grief sneaks up on you. We were going to get the grief bomb someday, some way, and it didn't have to have a tree to be at the trigger. Yeah. It could have been a broken shoelace that was the trigger. And my wife's birthday is coming up, and his death anniversary is close to her birthday. That should be a huge trigger. Maybe we'll skate through that one. We don't know. When you emailed me and you said, I listen to your podcast now, and I listen and I'm like, yep, that's us, that's us, that's us. Like As you're talking, like it's us. It, it's absolutely my son's birthday. Last year, we went to a lavender farm on his birthday, and that's where we got the head cold that killed my daughter. And so, like, two weeks later, she was gone. And we are coming up on all of that. At the time of this recording, we are 56 days away from the one-year mark. And stuff just hits you differently. And it could be the trees in the backyard, or it could be somebody beeped at me the wrong way (laughs) at the red light. Like, you don't know what I'm going through in this car. Do not beep at me with that tone. (laughs) It's hard, and it's heavy, and it comes out of nowhere. But then... I don't know about you, but it lingers for me. Like, it's not like it just stops. So, like, that triggered you last weekend. And now is it still, as a dad, like, how are you processing all of this five days later? Yeah, it's still there. I I wasn't saying it to flatter you guys before we got on the call, but I was really looking forward to this, thinking it, it would. And I think it is snapping me out of it a bit. But up until this hour, that feeling has been weighing on me. And I've been short with people. I've been less productive, brain fog. I know you guys have talked about it. It's real. It, it kicked in a little bit more. You know, the work needed to sort of remap your thoughts. Like, if this tree isn't the symbol I thought it was going to be, 
can I make a new symbol? And is that just as treacherous because the new symbol can let me down too? You know, um, my wife mentioned, you know, probably botanically, you know, the science of trees, what's happening is the big pine trees are robbing the nutrients that's needed by these young new trees. And so then could we look at the big pine tree as absorbing Lucas and memorializing Lucas? And is that bigger and better? Is that just as good? Or is it like, hey, we had this goal, we were trying for this goal, and that goal's not working. Well, boy, isn't that a metaphor for rear child parenting? Well, and the trees themselves are a metaphor for your grief. The first year, you did okay. And it's okay the second year to not be doing okay. It is absolutely okay for you to not be doing okay right now. And I'm getting all mama bear here, but like everybody keeps saying to me, like, you're almost at a year. Like, it'll get easier after the year. It will not get easier ever. And it is completely okay that those trees are not okay. Thank you. I needed to hear it. Thank you. Well, and I think, I mean, I speak for, you know, a lot of people. Like, I haven't lost a child. But I want to tell other people, too, that are listening that haven't lost a child, as you guys felt prior to losing a child, I'm sure, the extent that you know of your grief is the extent you know of your grief. And I know that, you know, last year around this time, I was not in a good place. And there are triggers. Like, here, I'm, here I am crying, too. You know, it's so cyclical. Like, when it does hit you of, wait a second, I had a really good year. We had a couple good months where we were just like trucking along and joyful and like seeing the good. And then it hits you like a ton of bricks and you step back and you're like, why do I feel like this all of a sudden? So I'm sorry. I cannot understand where you two are coming from. I hope you never have to, Diane. I know. Like I do too. Um, but I also want people to know that are listening that may just like have a quote unquote simpler diagnosis or, you know, not so devastating that like Grief is grief. You know, if you have a child with hearing loss and you're struggling with IEPs, like, know that it is cyclical. Know that you're going to have really good times, but don't be alarmed and don't beat yourself up for the times that you just get hit by a bus and you're like, why is this so damn hard, you know? Yeah, and that why is it so hard? We we kid ourselves or we forget or whatever. The load is heavy and we get maybe stronger. And there's that whole meme about that, like you get stronger to meet the load you bear and all that stuff. But... Because we get a little bit good at it, we can forget how hard it is. Thank you. And yes. I don't know if, if this was your experience too, Suze, but when in death, when the load is lessened, does it suddenly, it did for us, it suddenly dawn on you like, wow, we were doing a lot. Because now that I'm not doing it, I see it for what it was a little bit more. Right, like that heavy lift was every day, and I got used to it, but it didn't mean it wasn't heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, my, you know, we just um, got back from vacation. This was the second time now that I've come home having this expectation of Sayla being like, "Oh my gosh, I missed you, mom." You know, hugs and eyes lighting up, and I don't, I didn't get that, and it was like a punch in the gut. And I'm just like, I put so much effort and work into you. Not that I wouldn't, and this is going to sound terrible, but like. I'm not getting anything back from you. And so I was just venting and talking through it with my mom. And she stopped and she goes, you guys do not have an easy life. And those words have meant more to me than I can remember any words meaning to me. Because, you know, I even look at her helping care for my kids. And 
I think you do it so beautifully. Like you're like the energizer bunny. You get up, you do it, you always have a smile on. And I couldn't have asked for somebody to say anything better because you lose perspective, you know, and not that I want the pity and not that I want everybody to look at me like, wow, you're, you're really good. You guys, you know, have it hard. I wouldn't want that. But you just, it, like you said, it puts it into perspective because you forget the load that you carry and you forget how tired and kind of emotionally and physically exhausted you are. So that just meant the world to me. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree. And Diana, I'm so glad for like the first part of that story where you're honest enough to say like you had this expectation of your child and your child can't do that thing and we had a a maybe funny version of that sad funny with lucas if one of us was away i'd be away for a business trip or something because he was cognitively different and probably his sense of time is different he would not miss you while you were gone he'd miss you when you got back it was like he suddenly realized hey you haven't been here. Where have you been? So you could be gone for four days and not a problem. But on the day you return, the realization set in, and instead of getting what you wanted, Diane, getting a, oh, you're back, I love you, some kind of mm-hmm. feedback, right? It was resentment, disappointment, anger, clearly Lucas's version of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was rough. And it's hard when they're nonverbal. I... You know, she might, she loves Josh right now. I mean, my gosh, she is all daddy's girl, but you don't hear that. And so I forget that. Like, why do you not want me? And I'm going to be really blatantly honest and excuse my ignorance, everybody. I mean this with, like, I don't want to, I don't want to disrespect anybody. I always thought, I I feel like I can handle a lot, but it would be very hard to, for me, Uh, to parent a child with autism in the general assumption that they don't give me anything in return. And I know that's not for every child with autism, but you know, general public's view is like you take care of them and they have a hard time connecting with people. And that's kind of what I felt. And I found myself being like, oh my gosh, do I need to look for a diagnosis for her? And here I am thinking, no, step back. She is nonverbal. She can't tell you those things like you just said of wait a second, you just left me. I'm really mad. I mean, I came home and it's like, I'm her, oh good, you're home mom, take me downstairs, get me some chocolate milk, do this for me, do that for me. And it's all with like very demanding grunts and whines and points. And I was like, I am like chopped liver to you. Do you know how much, you know, in in my, (laughs) in my frustration and immaturity, like I do everything for you. You could at least give me X, Y, Z. And it's just like peeling back the layers of sacrifice and, just selflessly loving your child and serving them that it just humbles you a lot and it's painful. So to anybody that is listening that may be more of a caregiver or, you know, not knowing how to respond, it was just really helpful to hear like you guys, you know, I admire you. You do have a hard life. It was just humbling. So I'm now trying to focus on this podcast and help people and take that next step. And I have struggled because I'm like, do we narrow in on a specific type of diagnosis? Do we focus on the grieving parent? Do I focus on the parent who quote unquote just has a high functioning child that can, but in the end, it really doesn't matter because it's about the emotions and we are all feeling the same emotions. We are all feeling whether you have a child who has Down syndrome or you have a nonverbal Lorelei or, you know, like it, 
we all carry the similar but different, different but similar burdens and emotions and heaviness. And that's this conversation with all of us being in different places. It just, it makes me feel good about what we're doing because we can all relate. And in this case, we can relate whether we're moms or dads too. Yeah. I always say it's, um, because Global Genes work is across all rare diseases and my mm-hmm. film festival is any and all rare diseases. So the symptoms are unique, but the experience is almost universal. Yeah. I mean, it's no coincidence you guys have a club. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a club you'd never want to be a member of, but we encounter each other and there is more than a shorthand. It's uh, a lot of it just doesn't have to be said or it can be counted on as understood. Things we think of as common sense are only common sense for us. Those other people, those people dealing with Mm -hmm. typical health in their lives aren't experiencing the same things we are. Mm -hmm. And nor are we experiencing the same things they are. True. Mm -hmm. True. So my husband doesn't speak much. (laughs) Like he's not (laughs) nonverbal. But like he doesn't like he doesn't talk. I can vouch. I can vouch for her. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't express much through the medical journey. He is very scientific, very black and white. Um, and when you said the numbers help, like that's him. He hasn't expressed much in the grief journey. It'll occasionally be like, I was looking at a picture of Lorelai the other day, and I was like, okay, we can talk now. <laughs> um, but you are speaking to a group of moms right now. Is there anything as a partner that I could do to help my husband as he navigates this medical journey or this grief journey? Any any words of wisdom that you have for us? I, I think one of the big pieces of advice I have for moms, dads, everyone is find your people, right? And you, you can find that community based on your disease or based on all rare diseases. But I think for dads in particular, you might need to drill down on that and say, find your people that are dads. And that's harder to do. There are less of us, or less of us that are vocal. Yes. There's certainly less of us, I'm not including myself, that are primary caregivers. Uh, Bo Bigelow is one. We have another couple of friends that are. And that's a very Mm -hmm. much smaller subcategory. But you do need to find those people. And Special Fathers Network is a good place to go. They do some great workshops. Uh, A guy named David Ross is doing great work on mental health for men. Um, facing rare diseases and he'll do a monthly workshop and I know when you say mental health you know it feels like oh I'm going to sign up for a therapy session it's really just a bunch of people talking both I think Special Fathers Network and what David Ross is doing if you just think of it as a group of people talking and you know there's still reasons to be resistant to that like I don't know these people I'm going to have a conversation with strangers but I promise I don't even you, talk to my wife why am I going to talk to strangers right I promise you they won't feel like strangers if you're in this experience like we just said there are so much we have in common that the stranger thing kind of doesn't exist like our conversation today if you know you I hope you're not joking but we're all friends yeah. now I yeah. mean we've known each other for 59 minutes and we're friends mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Yep. It's so true. No, it's so true. I mean, you always feel that, but I I haven't really thought of it like that. Like, there's so much more in common. Diane and I tried to get our husbands to, to <laughs> record record our 4 a.m. Father's Day last year, and it was like pulling teeth. It was a little dull. It was, <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. I, I will say, having watched so many rare disease films, 
you typically see the mom do a lot of the talking and the dad being more reserved and not talking. That, to me, as a dad, makes it all the more meaningful and precious when the dad, this, this, you know, I don't mean they have to break and you have to see a tear fall down their face, but usually there's this little breakthrough moment where, like, it's important enough that they've gotten through their reluctance to speak and now they're going to speak and it's a gem. It's a bombshell. It's a, you know, I think of something I learned from Matt Sames, whose daughter Hannah has GAN, and it was so necessary to me to know and nobody else had ever said it. He said, degenerative diseases, you think it's just this decline, but it's not. It's a plateau and a decline and a plateau and a sudden decline and that description, you know, maybe it's math-oriented minds or visual. You can see a pie, uh, you can see a graph. That was so necessary to me because this journey is so unpredictable. Not even the decline, not even degenerative, is predictable, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. I know we have to wrap up, but can you quickly just tell us about the organization you work for and how it serves our community and how we can watch your channel? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the channel, um, if you have a Roku device or a Fire TV device, you just search like you would search to add HBO or Hulu or Netflix, and you search the Disorder channel, and you add it. It's free. We have over 150 different films and videos on wow. different rare diseases. Global Genes, it's meant to connect people who care about rare disease, whether they're directly affected or more you know, friend of a friend or, or a researcher or industry, to resources that can help them. And sometimes those resources are things we write and create, like a booklet or a series of videos or webinars. And sometimes it's just, and I don't mean just dismissively because this is really important, but connecting you to the next person, creating a community. And one of the things I'm most involved in is an online discussion group, like you would have a closed Facebook group. But this is for regardless of disease, regardless of diagnosis, as long as it's rare-related, come together. Because sometimes the answers aren't going to be in your Duchenne community. You know, you may be doing great work as a Duchenne community, but sometimes you need to go bigger than that. And you need to connect with what's going on in the cystic fibrosis community. Can we work together? Or can we learn from each other? So that's where an umbrella organization comes in. And that's sort of the role Global Genes is trying to fill. In addition to, we were built on our big events like Patient Advocacy Summit in September. This year it's in San Diego, which is a fantastic way. We're back, I think, to face-to-face events um, for the first time in a couple of years. And there's nothing quite like that. The virtual stuff only gets you so far. The accidental conversations, the people you meet, is really... A value above and beyond anything we could program. You know, here's a great lecture on this topic. Fine, but what you talk about after that in the lobby might be as important or more important. Mm-hmm. Oh, can we go, Diane? I'm can game. We go field trip. Field trip. I'm game. Yeah. So at the end of every episode, we ask one question of our guests, and this Father's Day, Daniel, what gives you hope? <laughs> I guess. Hope is other people. Um, you know, when I was 20 and you know, learning college things, I learned from Sartre that hell is other people. It took me another, um, from his play, No Exit, but it took me another 20 years to be wise enough to learn heaven is also other people. And it's like you guys say, both things at once, but not, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so having this horrible experience 
has opened the door to so many great relationships and so many people that do amazing things. And also, when you're vulnerable, you find people willing to be vulnerable in return. And so the same neighbor that you might have had a casual, stupid chat about lawn care or something with, now you're having a very deep conversation about my child this, oh, your ailing mother that, oh, it is similar, oh, we are, we're, we're now deeply connected, we're not just nice day for it, you know. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And we're yeah. going to all go fire up our fire sticks right now and um, yeah. <laughs> take, a, <laughs> take a deep dive into the channel. Yep. Good. We're going to binge on the Disorder channel. <laughs> what? Awesome. It, like, Not Netflix. Of, only rare disease moms are going to be like, and dads are going to be like, yeah, no, I'm binging the rare disease <laughs> channel. Like it is. <laughs> I, I know we, we've, we joke Bo and I that sometimes it's a tough sell You're like hey you want either the festival or the channel hey you want to watch a bunch of really sad stories <laughs> but we, you and I we all know how those same stories like you just did we end on a note of hope because mm-hmm. we, we, we have to but um, so it, it, is, it is that it is commiseration feeling that you're not alone and that optimistic what can we do next moment Mm -hmm. so with that we should we should start with happy father's day again to all the dads that are listening we appreciate Um, you and we appreciate daniel for being here and opening up and Mm -hmm. um and for him listening to our podcast as a dad like i it warms my heart to know that not just moms are listening and that i do like, really enjoy the men i think we need to bring more men on <laughs> i do I, we we can we can consider we can we can consider more men if we can find men who can articulate things more than our husbands <laughs> we can absolutely bring them on <laughs> maybe i should edit that part out yeah it's Father's okay. Day. You need to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, we should we should love on our husbands more than we did. This is Susan, and I'm of course gonna go and plug in the fire stick and watch TV for the rest of the day. Diane, what are you up to? You Probably laundry or getting disorder off the bus. Disorder channel binging. Oh yeah. This is Diane, I mean, and I have to actually go to Costco. It's gonna be 90 degrees here today. Thank you all for listening to the When Autumn Comes podcast. This is a production of The Hopeful Company, LLC. I'm not going to lie. It still makes me giddy to say that every week. We will see you next time.